Welcome to Rally Bates Radio on the 18th of December 2014. It's going to be Christmas this time next week and uh, people will be spending loads of money they don't have again and paying for it for the rest of the year, no doubt. Um, got Alan Watt on the line, our regular monthly guest. And this, uh, this week we're going to talk about a, an article in Cosmopolitan magazine written by Lord Birkenhead in 1929. Interesting that this... Uh, this article appeared in a, a women's magazine when he's talking about um, test tube babies and artificial wombs and, and things like that. Um, I don't know how it went down with the women of uh, 1929, but it's interesting. On the on the front cover, there's a picture of a lady reading a book, and the, the title of the book is called This Madness. Um, welcome to the show again, Alan. Yes, it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. Um, I suppose we better start off with uh, exactly who Lord Birkenhead was, what his background was, and... Uh, whose family was. Can you lighten us on that? Yeah, he, yeah. his name I think was Smith, actually, especially Smith, but uh, they were well connected and uh, and he, of course he eventually was made Lord and he became really the Crown Prosecutor for Britain for the, for the, for the establishment, you might say, against big cases, etc. So he was a big, big player. He also became a Member of Parliament then uh, House of Lords as well. And um, he he actually was involved in an awful lot of, of things that were happening about that that particular era uh, to do with uh, not just the sciences and promoting different sciences and the early royal society, but he was also uh, involved in setting up the um, uh, the separation of part of Ireland for the independence, uh, free state uh, of Southern Ireland, and so on. So he uh, worked with Collins, Michael Collins, on that, and. Um, uh, because of that, at least there's a, a partial independence there. So he was involved in a lot of big world affairs on behalf of, say, the Crown, you might say, or the establishment of Britain of his day. He knew uh, the top scientists of his day. He also knew the different agencies or societies that were helping run Britain, or actually ran Britain anyway, on behalf of the establishment. He knew the, the, the Rhodes uh, Group, for instance. He knew uh, the Milner Group. Uh, and he uh, was well, involved, well well aware of all the plans that they had for bringing in the form of world government based initially on the British system uh, and to do with free trade plus the, the adoption of the British system of supposedly uh, parliamentary systems, massive bureaucracies, and eventually they amalgamate all this into a kind of planetary system. So he was well well aware of the, the big agendas back in his day. But back then, too, we've got to remember, too, that, that he was born in the late in the 1800s, and in the 1800s, with the advances of science during that time, um, we can't imagine today uh, really how, how it was like a blitz of science all at once, from the steam engine that they could take across continents, etc. Um, engines were getting put into ships for the first time, all of this kind of thing. Uh, mass production like never before uh, on a massive scale. And uh, they thought this would never end. They could see uh, with this optimism that science would, would push on and push on and push on. But they also had, apart from this idea of a global type system, they, they never thought about uh, uh, equality for the people, really. They wanted a, 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 an obedient population, uh, well-trained. Training was the big, big 
part of it too. And early psychologists were involved in, in trying to find ways of creating the perfect culture, uh, um, basically having obedient, hardworking peoples, etc., etc. And when he wrote that in Cosmopolitan, and if you go through Harper magazines and so on, you'll find a lot more articles very similar to this from other big players around the same period. But they, they wanted uh, this, this division of labor that even Karl Marx talked about and so on. And how to they discussed in their big meetings um, how they could breed people for the particular jobs that they would have to do, and therefore for mundane, repetitive jobs you wouldn't want someone who would get driven crazy because their intellect wasn't being used. You'd literally breed them for the purpose. And in, 19, in uh, 1929, remember, uh, that was just about three or four years before Aldous Huxley brought us out his book, Brave New World. So he was in, he was in touch with all of these people uh, who were all pushing this futuristic society, including H.G. Wells. So these weren't just a little closet-type uh, meetings they had or after-dinner meetings. These were, these were big uh, club establishment meetings they had with all the top players being brought together to, to run society in the way that they thought it should be run. Not just talk about it, but, but how to implement it and how to use money to finance the different sciences that would be necessary, uh, including genetics, in fact, uh, to, to make, make all this happen, plus the psychologists, the early behaviorists, all of these people, which we have today, of course. Yeah, yeah well, if we start off with the, um, the introduction to this, uh, it says, This is a startling prophetic look into the future. Its author is not a dreamer or a harebrained fanatic. Lord Birkenhead is one of the foremost statesmen in England today. Uh, save this issue of Cosmopolitan, you won't be alive in 2029, but your children's children will be, and it will be interesting for them to check the accuracy of the predictions here made by Lord Birkenhead. And he's, the first one, right off the bat, is uh, babies will be produced by chemists in laboratories. Well, we're, we're well down the road of that. Uh, the entire institution yeah. of marriage will be changed. Well, that's that's been done. Uh, we'll all live to be 150. Now, I don't know where we are with that one. But um, no one will need to work more well, than two hours too. a day. Well, well, the thing is, too, what they did, um, you also find that, that uh, they, they, all, they all had already worked out that, that, that the problems, if they allowed people to work to live to that age and be pretty virile and so on, they'd be overpopulated in no time at all. Uh, and so uh, at the same time they were discussing all of this back in the, the 19, late 1920s, uh, they were talking about ways of contraception, etc., and finding ways of contraception. Now, but the thing is, too, before they'd even discovered the gene, they talked about genes quite openly amongst themselves and in their own writings. And um, it was another book from another person he knew, that Birkenhead knew, and that was uh, Rutherford. Rutherford was a top mathematician of his day with the Royal Society. And uh, in his own memoirs, um, you find that Rutherford talks about... Uh, for the last few years, before he died, he wrote, he wrote his book, but he said, I've been working uh, on genetics. This is before they could actually see in, in the genes and so on, and, and uh, on the chromosomes, etc. And yet, Which means that, that really, yeah, they had already discovered all this stuff a long time ago, because you wouldn't need a mathematician uh, unless you'd actually discovered uh, where they are and so on, and, and could use a mathematician in the process. It'd be, it'd be pointless otherwise. So um, these guys already knew that they could alter life itself uh, way back then. And there was high secret establishments obviously working on these projects. 
Yeah, well, I was going to come on to that later on. The, 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 benef the beneficial aspects of the technology, which obviously we're not going to get. Uh, we're only going to get the technology that's going to be used to um, put the chains on us, basically. Um, but, uh, again, if, if there was good technology, this, this prediction would probably uh, come true that no one would need to work more than two hours a day and they'd be allowed to get on and do the stuff that they really want to do but uh, again we're not going to get the technology to allow that to happen um, but this, mm. the next one is uh, agriculture will be abolished except as a hobby and all foodstuffs mm. will be produced synthetically well we're nearly yeah. there already with that one as well um, yeah. man will be able to alter the geography or climate of the world now they, they must have been trying this out back then and they must have all this stuff back mm -hmm. back then because you uh, couldn't possibly have predicted well, this kind of thing without trying it. Well, you can go you can go back further. This is this is this is the odd part of it too is that um, coincidence or not, but the fact is, if you read the New Atlantis by uh, Francis Bacon, uh, you, you find that uh, in that book uh, he talks about a machine uh, underground which could give off the light of the sun and control the weather. I mean, this has always been a fascination with these guys all down through the centuries, this total control of the environment uh, and everything in the environment, including us. Uh, and so you find um, uh, that, yeah, he, he revived that same idea simply because of the scientific elite he was mixing with Birkenhead. And and uh, and sure, they always they were putting so much of our tax money. This is the beauty of it too. They can use as much tax money as they want for all their quiet, uh, secretive uh, research, uh, and and actually start using it and so on. So um, I think it's been it's been that way for an awful awful long time. If it can be done, and he said the same thing, it will be done. If it can be done, it will be done. No matter what it is, you couldn't stop science. He said. Uh, therefore, uh, they thought about the ways they could use the, the, these things for their own benefit, not for the general public necessarily, but for their own benefit. But the odd thing was, back in the 1960s, there was a big spate again from this, this hurrah, hurrah thing from science and the BBC in England, where they're putting all these articles out on the future, back in the early 60s, when they wanted this big, uh, the public to... to, to, to have their old system destroyed, you might say, to rebuild the new one, uh, the hippie era, etc. And in the 60s, they said the same things, that eventually it'll be, a pl it'll be a privilege to get a job. You won't need a job. You'll be well, well looked after. Your whole, that leisure would be your biggest problem. How do you pass your time? No one would be poor. No one would be starving, etc. So they keep giving you these carrots all the time to get the public on board with this hurrah, hurrah, hurrah for science and the constant massive taxations for research and development for a future which you're no, never going to get yourself. Life extension, I have no doubt whatsoever, actually exists. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that in the, the film H.G. Wells, from the time machine, we see all the people just lazing about all day and, and, and doing nothing whatsoever, and that's supposed to be the, the utopia we're all promised. And uh, I yeah. remember the scene where the, the lady uh, falls into the river and nobody can even be bothered to get up and save her. <laughs> you know, that's, that's it. Right. She fell in the river. She was so stupid. Um, so that's that. Um, the life extension. You, I mean, we we we, all, we never we never see the likes of uh, the Kissingers of this world or the Rockefellers ever ever getting ill or getting cancer or, or anything. That's what the Royals. They all live to you know over a hundred. Um, I mean, the, the basic um, human life is is well capable of reaching a hundred years old um, if yeah. they get the right food, you know, nutrition. Um, and, and just stay healthy, uh, you know. Um, so, in terms of uh, life extension and technology, how do you, 
have you have you any information on how that's been done? Yeah, I, I'm sure they're well into I, I, disease itself. You know, it's not a one-on-one thing per bacterium or per virus, etc. What you have to see, what they, what they did a long time ago, is to see what all viruses have in common, and what all bacterium will have in common with each other. And they can simply uh, eliminate uh, the process as it divides and so on uh, and multiplies. They can simply hit all bacteria at the same stage and and kill it off immediately. I'm sure there are real inoculations there that were developed a long, long time ago. The Kissingers, as you say, uh, the Brzezinski's are still trotting across the whole planet. Um, you've got Maurice Strong, who is a good age now, still running around the planet giving his speeches and giving the royal carpet. None of them suffer from what you call aging diseases, such as Alzheimer's, uh, arthritis, uh, any, any of those things. Old David Rockefeller, same thing. So you just cannot have that in a person. They've got to have something wrong with them. But these guys are literally, they're full of energy. The energy they have could, could put a, a modern 20-year-old to shame at times. Uh, so, and the food they eat is, is the richest, uh, best food. It's, it's, it's not GM food. It's not soaked in pesticides and so on. I'm sure they've never had any inoculations that we get, and, uh, and yet they go on and on. So they, I'm sure that they're given life extension to do with literally what David Suzuki, another big uh, top lefty uh, world government character, um, David Suzuki said a few years ago on the CBC on national television in Canada, he said, and he's a geneticist by profession, actually, uh, and he's a guy who also said to his students, it's up there on YouTube, that people are just maggots, you know, there's different levels of maggots. Some of the, the richest maggots simply poop on the ones beneath it, and they live off the poop from the ones above. That's David Suzuki's arrogant uh, stance on these things. But he said that we at present have the capability to, to, to stop the, uh, the aging and uh, your genetic makeup and make a person live to 500 if we want to, you know. And uh, no one, there was no stir about that at all. You know? Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, moving on to the, ne- well, we've done the control in the weather. Uh, coal mining will be an extinct industry. Well, that's, that's basically happened, uh, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, and in the UK it's, it's completely gone, um, regardless of the fact I think we've got estimated 300 years worth of the stuff still under the ground. Um, a 48-hour day will come into being by retarding the rotations of the Earth. Now, I don't know why they would want to do that, but um, as you say, these, these guys uh, think you can't stop science, so you've just got to just gotta try it out. If you can do it, just let's try it, you know? It doesn't matter how dangerous yeah. it is, let's, let's do it and see what happens. Uh, but uh, the, one of the, the ones that, is, um, that everybody should recognise is uh, sitting in our homes, we will see and hear events the world over. I mean, this, this is before television supposedly invented. But uh, here, here we are, we can, we can, at the click of a, a mouse, we can watch any news channel all over the world and uh, be told, apparently, what's, what's going on in those countries. Um, these, um, I don't know how far back the invention of television goes, but uh, we're told it only happened... You know, around about the time of the between the First World War, Second World War. Um, how far back do you think this kind of technology goes? Oh, they were experimenting with television in the early 1900s on small scales. As as far as we know, it could be on much bigger scales, but on, on small scales for sure. And uh, you'll find from if you, depending on which country you're born into, you get a different version of who invented what and when. 
Uh, every country claims in, to be the inventor of the TV. Even Russia did that, and uh, uh, things like that. But also, but Marconi and his radio transmission, etc. Other ones supposedly did it before him. Yet you'll find that there's so many, con- so much conflicting data that you have to stand back and wonder uh, uh, how how old the technologies actually are. Um, don't forget that even in the days of Benjamin Franklin, there were exp- everybody was experimenting with Leyden jars, which they called batteries at the time in electricity. So scientific institutes had been experimenting quietly with this stuff for an awful, awful long time. And it's a quite natural progression when you look at uh, the purpose of, of how government sees itself or the establishment that owns it all and, and uh, how they see themselves is they, they rule, uh, they must be protected, they, they want to take over resources, etc., in other countries under different guises. It doesn't matter what guise it is. And uh, you're always going in to liberate or free up or, 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 or tame the wild savages, kind of stuff as you plunder. But the fact is, uh, and warf- warfare is the biggest, biggest power that they have. Therefore, uh, it would be fantastic to see what an enemy is doing. And they speculated about having cameras in the sky back back in his day, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, now we have drones as well all over the place. So so it was an actual thing to put a lot of money in an investigation and unlimited funding from taxes. That's the whole thing. Uh, into hiring lots of scientists to work incessantly on a problem which they'd eventually have to solve. It would, it would just simply happen, throwing money at it, putting the minds behind it, lots of experimentation. Eventually you would get your product. So what you're seeing is directed science. Uh, the present society we live in has actually been directed to be this way, not because they could have gone off in a thousand other directions, but because the establishment wanted these particular things for control purposes. Yeah, that's what I was going to go on to. Um, basically, the, the technology we're given is to, is to fit in with the, the overall agenda. We're, we're never going to get uh, technology which is going to benefit us. And uh, any, anybody looking around can, can see that. The only thing they've, they've given us that's uh, supposedly to uh, benefit us is the, the TV and the computer, you know, and the mobile phone. And it, well, the TV was the biggest brainwashing tool there is. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that will convince people that... Uh, all the technology is coming as uh, beneficial to them. But uh, I've heard you talk before, well, you mentioned the behaviourists involved in these kind of meetings as well. And, uh, I mean, back then, were they, were they studying the effects of bringing in this kind of surveillance society? And did they know exactly oh, yeah. how it would change people's uh, attitudes or behaviour? They had, they had experimental hospitals, actually, um, on the go in Russia, Soviet Russia, early Soviet Russia. Uh, the Bolsheviks immediately went into experimenting on the human brain. Uh, by really crude, nasty methods of, of taking skulls off wards, whole wards of patients. You, you actually see old video of them with the skulls removed uh, and doing the test probes of different parts of the brain. They're also sharing the data with Tavistock in, Eng- in, in, in England. And the Tavistock Institution is where uh, Aldous Huxley uh, was in and out of all the time. He was fascinated by the ability to insert basic electrodes or stimulate by simple electricity parts of the brain and have people turn right and left and and be be obedient and things like that. So they were wired at the time, so we're told. They didn't have the wireless, we're told. But I don't see why they couldn't have with the early um, remotes, etc., have eventually put in wireless remotes into the brain like Delgado did in, in the U.S., 
and he worked with CIA and FBI. So this has always been a, a thing with him, is to map the whole human brain. Pavlov was way into that thing. It wasn't just dogs he was working on. It was humans too. Uh, they had a captive population. Uh, they could simply round up a, a thousand people overnight under any guise at all, uh, under, under counter-revolutionary, and, and bring them in and simply experiment on them. And that was the last people ever saw of them. Uh, they were used as human guinea pigs. So they had literally um, enclosed, little enclosed societies of experimentation. In the West, we know that Tavistock was heavily involved in this uh, with patients, again, that no one uh, would ever see again. The relatives either wouldn't visit or, or, or the relatives, or there were no relatives. They were even better to do all, all the electrical stimulation in the brain, etc. But they also had experimental schools. That was a big part of it, too. And Lord Bertrand Russell, uh, also, um, who also knew Birkenhead, Lord Bertrand Russell was given permission to set up an experimental school in England uh, for quite a few years, heavily, heavily funded and closed from the rest of society to bring children up under a, 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 a completely different reality all a very closed system, and he said, if we want to, we can tell them that snow is white and, and the sky during the day is black and things like that. And they believe it because that's all their whole reality, the Plato's cave kind of thing. And uh, and they also tried to promote prepubertal sex. This is the idea being that if we can hyper-sexualize children before puberty, they'll really uh, be hyper-sexualized afterwards, and they'll never want to have a partner uh, for the rest of their life. So that would, would finish the institution of marriage for the general population. So uh, these things were all done way back in the 20s and the 30s, in the 1920s and 30s. Massive experiments, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of one of these predictions that time management will change forever. Well, it's it's virtually non-existent uh, these days to any any great extent. Um, he talks a lot in the first the first page of this about uh, alternative energy and admits that uh, the, the 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 cheapness of this energy supposedly um, will destroy uh, the lives of millions of people. And and uh, and he talks about uh, the, the cheap energy creating all kinds of uh, acute social problems. But he doesn't actually state what they are, apart from the fact that uh, it's going to destroy the livelihoods of millions of people. That um, it, would you have any kind of opinion on that? What, what exactly he means by that? Well, the livelihoods really is that things would become computerized uh, down the road. Uh, mechanical uh, uh, robots, we could say, would do most of the heavy work, etc. You wouldn't need the workforce as we know it today. And, and remember, too, that uh, Julian Huxley and Aldous Huxley, the two brothers, both talked about the same thing, but at the same time, uh, when they said that um, there, there, are, there are different strata of society that rule this system. And they said at the top, you have a dominant minority uh, that has the power, the money, and so on. That's why they'll never give up their, their hold on what we think of as money that we think is normal, but it's all, it's all a, a, a rigged system. Um, and to the elite, they don't need the money as a system for control. But they said under that, they have a scientific elite. It says, we, I mean the Huxleys, they belong to the scientific elites. And along with their kind of sciences, you, you had the social sciences coming in big time then, 
psychology, behaviorism, and so on. And you also had the chemists coming in uh, and so on, and, and biologists, etc., uh, that give you the inoculations, all these kind of things. So, so they, they, they talked about the, the total control of society to try and alleviate the problems they'd have when they had a massive population, um, which they wouldn't need anymore. Um, but they didn't want them to rebel either, so they'd give them lots and lots of entertainment. Uh, but at the same time, they'd have to sterilize them quietly along the way. Uh, and they mean quietly. In other words, they wouldn't come out and admit it. Uh, the symptoms would be obviously be there as they are today, but they won't come out and admit it. They've been doing it deliberately. And eventually, uh, the worker type who hadn't evolved, because evolution is a big part of this, uh, their belief system, uh, the, the working force that did the mundane jobs wouldn't be needed. They'd be, they'd be obsolete, uh, and they hadn't evolved any higher and never could evolve any higher. If they could evolve higher, they'd have done it already. That was their whole stance on all of this uh, class system at that particular time. Hasn't really changed, by the way. But um, so eventually, uh, if, you, if, you, if you go from book to book from the characters who all knew each other and discussed this in their big meetings, you'll find that H.G. Wells had in his book called A Modern Utopia, uh, where he projected how the future would be, he said that we, we used to think we'd have to simply kill uh, the excess uh, uh, population which were irrelevant nowadays for the future. He said, but uh, we, we took the kinder way and simply sterilized those people so they couldn't reproduce. They could live their life and, and then die off and, and there'd be no, none of their offsprings to cause any problems. So these, every part of the topics of how all of society works had been gone over by different little think tanks in its particular day. It's much, much, much bigger today, of course, naturally. Yeah. Getting back to the, um, the advent of television, as he predicts, uh, he, even, he even actually used the word television before uh, television was invented. Um, it says here, during the next hundred years, applied physics will certainly develop wireless telephony and television beyond our present most imaginative expectations. By 2029, it should be possible for any person sitting at home to be present. He's got that in inverted commas, so it's, it's almost like a virtual reality he's, he's talking about here. At no, at, at no matter what distant event, stereoscopic television in full natural colours and perfected wireless telephony will enable him to see and hear any event which is broadcast as effectively as if he stood beside the transmitting apparatus. And then he goes on to say, you talked about its uh, propaganda um, uses. Such developments must influence the future of politics, for by their aid it will be feasible once more to revive that form of democracy which flourished in the city-states of ancient Greece. So, so there, there's, the, there's a plan laid out. That's, that's where they want to go with it all, uh, back to ancient Greece, where they can uh, sit in their ivory towers and uh, just throw bread, bread and stuff to the, the peasants, basically. That's right, and also that is the, the, what the think tank for the British uh, military came up with back in 2008, I think it was. Um, it was the big, big 90-page report, which I put up on my website, cuttingfreemedics.com. Uh, and remember, this particular think tank is the, is the Department of Defense's think tank for Britain and NATO, all NATO countries. And they said that eventually, uh, uh, by 2050 or whatever, they, just, they think that countries will simply be, like Karl Marx said, that they would wither away. You can see why they both work together, these two systems, the, the dialectic. And nation states would, would, would uh, survive, certain nations or city states would survive. And they actually mentioned some of the city uh, states that they, they, they wanted to keep. 
and and uh, other ones which may or may not be allowed to to go in. The rest of the the, the what used to be countries would become barbaric and wastelands as folk died off, etc. And they would be privately run, by the way, privately owned. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it carries on on the um, the political argument uh, to uh, ad- advancing television. And um, by 2029, the chosen spokesman of each political party will be able to address every voter as effectively as he now can address the House of Commons. And so the electorate itself, rather than its representatives, may decide each vital political issue. After the spokesman of each party has had his or her say, the votes of the entire country could be recorded and counted by mechanism installed in the telephone. Uh, Within 20 minutes from the end of the last speech, the will of the national jury on any subject could be ascertained and announced. Now, that's uh, that's obviously pertaining to electronic voting. Uh, from home, you don't have to go out and put your ex in the box anymore. You just have to listen to this talking head on the television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that he actually says his or her. I mean, this was in the day when when women were still in the kitchen and you know, kind of yeah. kind of weren't really in the workforce as such. But uh, he's he's clearly stating that there will be um, the heads of parties will be women in the future as well. Um, and and here we are. You know, it's it's yeah. all been done, and it is. As you say, it's the most effective uh, propaganda tool on the planet. And uh, when we see these guys getting up there uh, pontificating on one issue or another, um, people just buy it. They buy it. And again, uh, what Birkenhead said, I think, was he said that uh, big decisions could then be more egalitarian. Uh, in other words, that the people would decide. That was the carrot that, 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 that the writers of his particular era were putting out there this wonderful future utopia. They had to get the people to go along with all of this, so you offer them the carrots, it's going to be a wonderful life for you, etc., uh, making them think that you're all going to be one of the chosen. Uh, and even Julian Huxley said the same thing. He says lots of, of the people who are working for our agenda think they're going to be chosen to come through, and they're sadly mistaken. So they must always use the masses to go along with their own demise. That, that's the technique that's always used because they had no intention of letting the public decide anything. On the other hand, too, they also knew uh, how decision-making is made by the general public. It's all to do with information. They knew they, could, they can always guide the public into making the so-called correct decision or correct vote uh, by putting the things across in the right manner to the public. So they can count on the public to vote the way they want them to vote. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, he goes from uh, uh, physics to chemistry, and he's, he starts off by saying applied chemistry has not affected human life in a manner comparable with the changes produced by physical research. So far as the ordinary man is concerned, chemistry is only useful to him when it discovers new and desirable substances, in other words, drugs, yeah. uh, or discovers a means of syn- synthesizing a material more cheaply than it is produced in nature. In the past, chemists have enriched the resources of humanity with new metals, dyes, drugs, explosives and other substances useful in industry or in private life. By 2020,000 more such new substances will be available. Aluminium will be cheaper than pig iron is today. Malleable, unbreakable glass will be a commonplace of domestic life. And uh, what struck me with that is uh, we hear a lot in the, the, the US about, I'm sure it's the same in Canada, about this, this drive to legalise um, cannabis. And uh, the young, young people I've spoken to here are, are all for it. They're going to vote for this guy because he's, he's all for legalising cannabis. And I'll try to say to them, but uh, it won't be this cannabis you're buying now. It's going to be the stuff that they, they produce for you. And it isn't going to be um, organic. It's going to be synthetic and possibly genetically modified. And you won't know what you're smoking. I mean, is well, that, the thing is, is too, you, yeah, you find that... The, the, 
even Aldous Huxley came up with the same idea in his book, Brave New World, 1933, you know. He came up with SOMA. SOMA would be given to the general public uh, to keep them quiet and passive and, and in a state of ecstasy, basically, no matter what they had to work at or the miserable conditions they lived in. And, of course, we know that the military, for instance, some of the, the, the strongest marijuana out there was created by the military, genetically modified, etc. And it's no secret either for those um, who were working in the medical profession uh, on post-mortem or topsy. It's no secret whatsoever uh, that it does go in and it does uh, start to enlarge the ventricles inside the brain, which destroys uh, uh, systems around that particular ventricle area. That you produce less L-dopa, things like that. So it can make you very, very passive down the road, regardless if you if you stop taking it or not. It, it does uh, has a permanent effect eventually. Yeah. Yeah, because it has also been suggested that chemical research will turn to the discovery of new psychologically pleasant substances. Again, uh, there's, there's your soma for you. Uh, at present, uh-huh. civilized mankind has discovered and adopted only three substances: tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine. Uh, these certainly have added enormously to the amenities of existence. And Dr. J. B. S. Haldane has proposed that chemists should seriously consider a search for many more such additions to human enjoyment. Of course, Haldane was a eugenicist, I believe. Um, most chemical substances are either disagreeable or dangerous in their psych. Sorry, physiological effects, uh, though a small number, not more than a few thousand, are valuable to medicine. Should chemistry in the next hundred years be able to discover a dozen substances as pleasant pharmacists, yet each producing a different effect on the consumer, it will have earned the thanks of every hard-worked man and woman in the world. <laughs> in other words, you go, you, go, you go to work, you have a really bad day, and then you come home and take your dose of drugs to make yourself feel better. Yeah. Like, I suppose, yeah. many people do with alcohol today. They do today with drugs and alcohol, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, too, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of the drugs today are prescribed by the doctors for, for all their depressions and, and so on and so on. And uh, there's nothing about getting to the bottom of depression or why you're depressed. It might be the rotten job that you're doing and, and this monotonous existence that you're in. So um, uh, pharmacology has no intention of course, of finding the problems. Their whole point is to, is to get you drugged so you don't think about the problems and you drift through life in a kind of fog, you know, a happy fog. And, and most, most medications out there are prescribed by doctors. Also, even the prescription medications in some areas in the States especially, and maybe elsewhere too, uh, but there's been documentaries about the States uh, in some areas, they're just prescribing OxyContin for anything, any problem at all. Doesn't matter what it happens to be, uh, until they've got to whole whole parts of the of U.S. states uh, hooked on this stuff, and these are all prescribed by doctors, and they're getting away with prescribing this stuff, so, which means it's part of an agenda. It has to be. Yeah. yeah um, Paula was talking to, to somebody earlier today or yesterday uh, about medication she's on, and now she's this uh, lady's to go for a, a liver biopsy, and Paula's trying to say, yeah. to, "Well, it's the drugs that you're on that are causing the liver problems. You need to get off them to start with." I mean, I don't suppose a doctor's told her that. But um, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's just one one thing after another. One one side effect's got to be um, cured by another pill, which will cause another side effect, and on and on it goes. Um, but he, he moves on. To, he starts talking about um, painkillers and anaesthetics, and he immediately he relates it to painless childbirth. And then he goes on to say, it, um, biologists by 2029 will have learned the secrets of the living chemistry of the human being. Uh, or at least enough of it to achieve startling results. Rejuvenation will be an ordinary and well-recognized matter of a few injections at appropriate intervals. The desire to keep old age at bay has never been one of the dream- has 
ever been one of the dreams of humanity. At least we can predict that it will be achieved. Um, this, this mortal put on mortality by extending the length of his days on earth. He's got he's got that um, phrase there. This mortal must go on. Uh, put on immortality. Is, is that a, that's a direct quote from somebody? I don't know if you know who that is. But, uh, anyway, the attraction of such an idea, especially to women who will no longer grow old quickly, is too clear to require emphasis. Now, we've seen, I mean, particularly the likes of Cosmopolitan magazine itself, uh, the, the promotion of, uh, you know, women have to stay young, they have to stay beautiful to, to get on in the yeah. world or to get the best jobs and all the rest of it. And it is, again, uh, we talk about propaganda and uh, like Stalin, Hitler, they knew that you had to target the women. So, so here we are, we've got the women pressurised into, into doing this, to stay young, look young, and, and all the rest of it. And it goes on to say, but the universal practice of rejuvenation will be accompanied by grave social problems, the least of which would be the immense increase in population. So it brings in population. Uh, suppose it possible to guarantee 150 years of life to every healthy child, how will youths of 20 be able to compete in the professions or in business against vigorous men, still in their prime at 120, with a century of experience on which to draw? The benefits to humanity which will accrue if the lives of men are so prolonged is obvious. So he's talking about themselves there. Um, we'll, we'll all benefit if these guys are allowed to live to 150 and the wealth of experience, um, but we're not going to get life extension because uh, we're just not worthy enough. Mm-hmm. That's right, and also, to, also too, the the whole point was to uh, create a person with a genius level uh, through, through manipulation prior to again uh, exogenetics, etc. And they would do it before uh, outside the womb, basically. They could literally piece a person together with different genes, etc., which they are doing, by the way, uh, on the quiet, and have been doing it for years uh, for, for women who are, are childless. Uh, where they, they get their ovum, etc., extracted, a whole bunch of them, and 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 that's the last we'll all see of what's actually happening. But it isn't simply matching it up with a, a spermatozoon somewhere. It's actually um, they're actually taking genes out and putting genes in, and then following uh, uh, the children who actually get born from from these these experiments. They're following them down through their lives to see how they react, behave, etc. And they're being well studied without their knowledge, actually. Uh, so uh, this has been going on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, he actually goes on to that on the, in the next paragraph. He, he says, um, most prob- probably by 2029, a clever young man will consider his fiancée's hereditary uh, complexion before proposing marriage, and a young woman of that day will refuse him because he has inherited a gene from his father which will predispose his children to quarrelsomeness. By intelligent combination of suitable genes, it will be possible to predict with reasonable certainty that truly brilliant children shall be born of a marriage. It is possible, however, that by 2029, the whole question of human hereditary and sorry, heredity and eugenics will be swallowed up by the prospect of ectogenetic birth. By this is meant the development of a child from a fertilised cell outside its mother's body in a glass uh, vessel filled with serum on a laboratory bench. Um, I was talking to Sir Anne Possel a couple of weeks ago, and there's a, a group called I think, I think it's 23 and Me, who will do a, a genetic test on you, and they match you up with somebody uh, to marry. Based on yeah. on your genetic uh, traits and your compatibility, uh, n- nothing to do with attraction, nothing to do with uh, emotion. It's just uh, your genetics and uh, to make sure you have the, the right kind of children. Uh, so that's that's happened, and now we've got um, private agencies coming out and uh, advertising their wares. Um, 
and it's, it goes on to say, such a, proce- a proceeding is neither incredible nor indeed impossibly remote. The results of much research show that the, uh, cor- the connection between a mother and her growing child are purely chemical. There is no valid reason why one day biologists should not be able, uh, able perfectly to initiate that chemical connection in the laboratory. So, uh, so again, we're not um, we're not humans with uh, emotional attachments or physical attachments to to the children we have, but it's, it's just all chemical. We, we shouldn't really bother getting emotionally attached to the children because they're just they're just a bunch of chemicals. And that's it. Um, the possibility of ectogenetic children will naturally uh, arouse the fiercest antagonism. Religious bodies of many different creeds will uh, rally their adherents to fight such a fundamental biological invention. Well, he's, he's just said it's all chemical, but now he's saying it's biological. So there's, there's a contradiction there, surely. In fact, the mere mention of the possibility here uh, may strike many readers as gratuitously disgusting. It is. Uh, nevertheless, the thing is possible, and since it is possible... Yeah, what's interesting there is that uh, is that um, you find that um, remember that the elite themselves have, have really many psychopathic traits developed over centuries of inbreeding uh, with powerful people, people who who seek power are pretty ruthless, etc. And they marry the daughters of uh, successful, ruthless other people who are very wealthy and so on. So they have psychopathic traits, and they send their own children off at a very early age. I mean, first of all, a nanny will raise them. Uh, And so the bonding doesn't take place for the elites between the parent and the offspring uh, that have more in common with their nanny, actually, for the rest of their lives than they do with a mother, for instance. Then they're sent off to boarding school, etc., etc., and so they don't develop uh, what, what the, the normal folk have uh, with, who raise their own families, etc. But they do understand that normal folk do raise their own families. So they're talking about themselves and projecting their own view of it onto to everyone else at the same time. But at the same time, they do understand how the ordinary folk literally have their families grow up in their own households with them. Uh, so uh, uh, you have to understand the, their point of view and their, the, the fact that what they did was the norm uh, for their whole class to send your children off and, and uh, stiff up our lip, don't show emotion, etc., to, to to your own family members. So they, they, that's why they, they were all for this idea it was chemically based, etc., rather than the fact uh, that it was their actually class system and psychopathy that couldn't let them bond even with their own children at times. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it goes on, it goes on again. Uh, nevertheless, the thing is possible, uh, talking about uh, ectogenetics, uh, and since it is possible, it is certain that scientists will be deterred by no persecution from straining after it. In other words, uh, no, no kind of morality or, or ethics is going to come into this. They're just going to do it anyway, regardless of uh, any public outcry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, uh, should ectogenesis ever become an established part of human society, its effects will be shattering. Primarily, it will separate uh, reproduction from marriage and the latter institution will become wholly changed. Further, the character of the future inhabitants of any state could be determined by the government which early to enjoy power. By regulating the choice of the ectogenetic parents of the next generation, the cabinet of the future could breed a nation of industrious dollars or leaven the, the population with 50,000 charmingly irresponsible mural painters. A further immediate consequence of the ectogenesis would be a plea that society should be allowed to produce the human types it most needs instead of being forced to absorb all the unsuitable types which happen to be born. So, um, 
again, we're, we're right back to eugenics again. The whole thing is about eugenics and uh, nothing to do with uh, bettering society. Well, not, not for uh, the vast majority of societies, but certainly to benefit these guys. And that's all it's about. Yep. It's not about no, science, it's not about uh, promoting science. Yeah. Um, many of the arguments brought against slavery would be powerless. In, uh, sorry, uh, I was talking about breeding a intelligent creatures to perform intricate drudgery yet lacking all ambition what ruling class would resist the temptation so again there's, your, there's no morality there's just a, they're just going to go for it and it says um, many of the arguments brought against slavery would be powerless in such a case for the heterogenetic slave of the future would not feel his bonds and I think that's where we are now we're just, we're just going along day to day paying our we are you see you can, you can make slavery as long as you don't use the terms you, you can live in a communist society uh, and we have all the trappings of communism, but not call it communism. Uh, you can call it the Liberal Party or the Social Party or whatever, but it's still the same thing. Uh, as long as you don't use actual terms, the average, average person won't relate it. It's rather strange that, but they won't relate it to what, what, what actually exists. Uh, and he's talking about the same thing there. Slavery can be made very enticing if you don't call it slavery. You simply say you have to give so much data to use this program or app or whatever it happens to be, but look at all the benefits you'll have. So you entice them into it, giving up voluntarily, piece by piece, until they are an actual slave to the whole system, including their cell phones. In fact, they're having breakdowns when they lose them now, a lot of young folk. Uh, so it's working very, very well. People don't realize you give up your freedoms uh, for, for some other reward. Very simplistic, you see, they, they did it all with rats and animals, which was nothing to do with to see if they could train an army of rats. It was all to see if they could be used, all these experiments could be used eventually on humans. Would you give up your own ability to survive independently or think independently for all these rewards? And unfortunately, the answer seems to be yes. Yeah. It goes on talking about slavery. Uh, every impulse which makes slavery degrading and irksome to ordinary humanity would be removed from his mental equipment. His only happiness would be in his task. He would be the exact human counterpart of the worker bee. Only the arguments of religion could be used to prevent his evolution. And again, that's why we're seeing the destruction of religion. Uh, his emancipation could never be considered. For his freedom, he would find only crushing boredom and misery. Well, I think, I think I'd rather have the crushing boredom than misery than be a slave, to be honest. Uh, I don't see how uh, yeah. slavery can be enjoyable. But obviously, again, going back to Brave New World, when, when they issued out the SOMA, these people were just uh, mindless automatons and just did uh, a specific task all day, got the SOMA, came back, did the same thing day after day after day, and they the, the were all dressed the same, the uniformity of the, the uniform, the, the brown overalls or, or the dungarees, and it carries on. It seems improbable, however, that the future development of industry will call for such a being to tend its wheels. Production will become uh, so cheap and barring political or international upheavals, wealth will accumulate in such an event, uh, sorry, to such an extent that the ectogenetic robot will never be needed. It is far more likely that men will work as machine minders for once a day and be free to devote the rest of their energies to whatever forms of activity they enjoy. So there's, there's a carrot being put out to people to say, oh yeah, you, you wanna, you'll have to do a couple of hours a day and uh, get to do what you want after that. But uh, if, if you've already been given all these drugs to, to keep you happy, um, this is a kind of a contradiction to that, to say that if you had to work a 40-hour week, you wouldn't be happy. Yeah, so, that's yeah, right. Which is it? Again, they said in the 60s, when they revived all this idea, uh, to accept science as, as your new uh, god, you might say, uh, a wonderful Santa Claus, 
that eventually you'd have this utopia and even had huge displays in all the top magazines and the newspapers across Britain and the rest of the world of people walking about, drawings of folk walking about in togas, Roman togas for goodness sake, all with smiles on their face. That was going to be the future they depicted in the 1960s. And they got it all from uh, previous uh, agendas, which actually the same agenda which had never stopped from, from even before Birkenhead's time. Now, Birkenhead also knew Charles Galton Darwin uh, and the Darwin family. And, and remember, too, in the next million years written by Charles Galton Darwin, he says, he said, we're now in the process of creating a more sophisticated form of slavery. And that was back in the 1950s. So um, you're simply living through an agenda. I've always known this. And, and uh, all those, these, these things that keep uh, coming up in your own lifetime simply show you you're living to a timetable, in fact. As I say, sciences, all, all the sciences are directed by funding. The funder tells them what they want them to look for or how to do something. And they have to achieve that goal. Uh, it's not willy-nilly, uh, just fi- finding out by, just for the, the purpose of uh, inquiry and finding things out. They're actually all directed along this one agenda, and we're living through it uh, today. You know. Just at the last uh, few paragraphs, it gives a kind of brief conclusion, um, very, very brief. Um, I've assumed that the rate of progress in applied physics, chemistry, and biology during the next 100 years will be maintained approximately at its present level. It may even be greatly accelerated, accelerated by the ever-increasing interest in scientific research on the part of industrialists and governments. So you've got your corporations and your governments working together to do all this. Nevertheless, unless science is able to change our ideas no less rapidly than our environment, some of the developments at which I have hinted may not come to pass. Unless, for example, the ideas of Asiatic peoples are drastically changed, it will be impossible to stamp out epidemic disease from the world. So... In, I, mean, I don't know what, he's, is he hinting at the fact that the, the Asiatic peoples had their own kind of um, medicines and things like that and kind of went down the natural medicine route or is he just being racist? Well, I think it was a hidden thing really in some ways because you see, uh, at that time the Western world was all under one kind of system starting from the Alfred Milner group, uh, Road Society, into the Royal uh, the Royal International um, RII, CFR basically, is called across the whole planet. But it's the Royal Institute for International Affairs that was to run this global system, but by that time they didn't have early China in, in on it. And so, unless you get all the, the vaccinations that are once again there to help you, uh, they couldn't make all of this happen because that vaccinations, I'm, I'm pretty well certain, are really not there to help you at all. Uh, people are uh, becoming incredibly uh, sterile. Uh, with every generation that passes, it gets worse and worse. It's the vaccinations, it's also the food system they give you too. They know all this too, of course, and it's, it's well documented uh, uh, at the very, very top. You, you can't study their graphs as to, as to population and demographics of people who are becoming more sterile in certain areas without looking at all the inoculations they've been given, what batches of inoculations and so on. So it is working, as is said, because one of the big problems was they didn't want too many folk around in a post-industrial society, which they'd been talking about, by the way, since the the beginning of the 1900s. They knew that there would eventually be a post-industrial society and you wouldn't need all the labour and workers, etc. So... The best way to do it, like H.G. Wells said in the modern utopia, is to quietly sterilize them and they'll simply die off and they won't procreate. They might enjoy life to an extent and they'll die off. 
So that's actually happening today. It's also the excuse for the mass immigration into Britain, for instance. The Margaret Thatcher used, she says, we must bring in mass immigration because the people aren't having enough children. It wasn't just because they weren't having enough children, it's because so many of them were becoming sterile. And all the studies have shown that, the males especially, the sperm count is almost zilch today, active uh, sperm. And uh, same in the U.S. This is with 18-year-olds, by the way. They do these surveys every single year. Uh, they all show an increasing sterilization. And, it's, and apparently it's not a crisis. Why isn't it a crisis? Because it's meant to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it finishes off uh, basically what we talked about earlier, that science can be used for good or bad. But, um, but it is not self-evident that all applications of scientific discovery deserve the support of intelligent men and women. So in, in other words, uh, if the something that's going to benefit the masses, um, they ain't going, they're not going to support it. Um, because science has benefited humanity in the past, there is no reason why it always should do so in the future. And then he goes on to say, but uh, this, this might all change if somebody sets up an atomic bomb and just wipes us all out, so his predictions would be meaningless. But um, he probably knew that wasn't going to happen either. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's clearly stating that, um, that the only science that's going to be supported is the science that... Uh, they want it, it's going to benefit them. It's, it's not going to benefit humanity in the, in the wider sense. It's only going to benefit the small group at the top who are, who are controlling it. Yes. Uh-huh. Always, it's always been that way, really. You know, It's always been that way. Yeah, you get some entertainment value. You get entertainment value from the television and so on, but you're also being indoctrinated all the time with the TV as well, with new ideas on how to behave, uh, what your marriage is or should be or could be, or promiscuity should be, etc., etc., or how correct the state should be and how much power the state should have with all their SWAT teams and their dramas and so on. Uh, everything you see on television to do with police or, or the medical establishment done in a dramatic form, a drama form, a series or movie, is all propaganda, as Jack Silal said, uh, you know, and he was a great philosopher, uh, it's there for propagandic reasons to give you a false idea, so as you'll obey that these these what used to be services, police services were services. You could also uh, cancel the contract with them. Uh, same with the healthcare; it could be cancelled. But like Lenin said, and he was in on the same agenda too, by the way, using uh, the Soviet system as a laboratory. That's why the West set it up, um, the Soviet system. Lenin said that um, they would win through slogans, which would be put across, just repetitive slogans or phrases, etc. Repetition works on the human mind, and they would win that way. The best way to do it, of course, is through radio, television, movies, and so on. And um, it's all pretty well happened uh, since these guys were on the go. But Lenin also said that services, the West will proliferate with services, uh, uh, child care services, police services, health care services, and these services which are voluntary, whether you wanted it or not, you could say, no, I don't want that. Now you can't, now they're authorities, that's what he said, they'll event, their, their job is to turn and train the public into be that they are the authorities, that's what you have today. So you're run by authorities from birth to death, you see. Yeah, okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, that was Birkenhead uh, predicting what was going to happen up to 19, uh, 2029. Um, a quick prediction of what you think is going to be 100 years down the line. I think they'll pretty well achieve it because the the public adapt all the time. The whole theories that came out of Darwinism with adaptation, etc., are very true, and they're heavily sunk into the, the whole scientific revolutions. 
uh, and the funding to do with uh, people managing, managing people. This is the big, big job today through, through managing people, world managers, people managers, social managers, all these managers. Uh, and now you have managers basically appointed by the government in Gerfec for Scotland, appointed to every child that's born, basically, to make sure they can tweak you before you get any self-thoughts or own thought, thought from yourself. No, they'll, they'll make sure you get the, the state's authorised thoughts. So it's all here. Management from birth to death is already underway. The, the Gerfec program is, is called Other Names in Other Countries, all coming from the United Nations, by the way. It's a, it's a treaty all began in the United Nations under the rights of the child. So who just had their big meeting there again, the rights of the child. And all they talked about was the rights of children to be indoctrinated in, in the LGBT agenda, etc. Uh, so the whole idea is to destroy all that was to bring in the new. You must always destroy the old to bring in the new. That's the, the, the thing I always repeat. Uh, and that's been awfully successful. The 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 think tank for the British Department of Defence also said the same thing, that by 2050 they said the population would drastically show a drastic decrease in population, and that included China. Uh, it was already well underway in the West until people say in, in some uh, say the native Scots and so on etc were already under uh, the, 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 the numbers for reproduction and sustainability for themselves so they're just going to fade off the map actually, uh, things like that so this all came out from the top think tanks for the Department of Defence and NATO it's well underway what they want plus their city-state idea the same thing as Birkenhead talked about for a manageable society of the proper kind of people in their city-state, all the specially bred ones to serve the elite at the top. And they said that future wars will be limited and more very high, high-tech wars between occasional city-state until they all agree to, to, to be one again, you know, one, one governmental system worldwide. So they're, they're on their way to it. Yeah, I suppose the way they've done it in China. Also, and I should mention too too that the United Nations publishes uh, every year or two uh, the IQ tests for the same countries over and over. We've dropped about five to to seven points IQ in the last ten years or so. That doesn't happen by itself. Not at all. just, just, I mean, the, the, the whole point of China is that they've brought in the one-child policy that they have a, a, a culture whereby infanticide is, is fine if it's, a, if it's a girl you're going to kill. And uh, it's no wonder the population is going to go down if there's, uh, if there's hardly any women around. Uh, it's it's, it's yes, going to take its toll, isn't it? Yeah, yes, but it has more of an effect too. That's also the reason that they promote so much homosexuality to alleviate the, 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 the actual sexual drive amongst just the men that's left, you see, things like that. So they've, they've taken care of everything, they've thought of everything that they'd have to do, you know. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we'll leave it on that cheery note. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk yeah. again next month, I, think. I believe, uh, uh, January 15th, I think, your next one. Okay, yeah. So, um, take care. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks very much, Alan. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, then.